Welcome back to the Durst Show. A lot has happened since the last time we were uh, together. The Queen's funeral today. I'm really not going to talk about that. I have nothing to add to the you know, splendor and the glory of uh, the sad event. Um, we know that uh, Mike Lindell's phone was seized. Um, I've been consulting with some of his lawyers about the Fourth Amendment issues relating to that. And maybe at some future time we can uh, talk about that. Um, I want to talk about Martha's Vineyard. Uh, you'll remember what happened that 50 or so immigrants, mostly from uh, Venezuela, uh, were sent by um, Governor DeSantis, uh, flown to Martha's Vineyard without any warning to Martha's Vineyard. And um, we're going to talk about that. But something else happened over this weekend. I was uh, leaving my synagogue on Saturday morning. You'd think God would give me a little protection. And um, I tripped on a, a little uh, tree protection area, and I just fell into the gutter on my nose, on my head, on my two knees, uh, broke my wrist, uh, busted my toe. I had to go to the emergency ward. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to the synagogue. I don't go that often. Coming back from the synagogue, this happens to me. Well, my rabbi explained it. He said, I was supposed to go to a big dinner that night, uh, and I probably would have caught COVID. And God decided to trip me instead. And that way I didn't get COVID, just got, you know, broken wrist, nose, etc." All right, I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. Um, um, I, I got really good care at uh, Cornell Weill uh, Hospital. You know, at my age, a lot of my exercise is walking back and forth to doctors and hospitals. 84 years old, I've been generally blessed with, with good health over most of my life. And uh, tripping? I mean, who the heck would imagine that you'd be tripping? Um, um, it was just, I was walking with my one of my best friends, and uh, my shoe just got stuck in a little thing, and it I fell over. And, um, you know, I don't have the instincts I used to have. Usually you can just put your hands out and fall on your hands. And uh, this time my nose got me. And uh, fortunately, it got me in the nose. And I only got bruised a little bit on my head. Um, and that's what I worried about. And they did a CAT scan. They found that I was perfectly okay. So <clears throat> let's turn to Martha's Vineyard. As many of you probably know, I've been going to Martha's Vineyard for 53 years, um, not consecutively for a few years I went to the Cape, but it was 53 years ago that I went to the vineyard for the first time and went back almost every year since. I went there to represent Ted Kennedy. Um, I was part of the legal team when he drove off the bridge with Mary Jo Kopechny and, uh, and, and, and Mary Jo Kopechny was killed and there was a big investigation. Um, as to whether or not um, Ted Kennedy, who I knew at the time, uh, was culpable, was guilty. And um, I helped formulate some of the uh, defenses. And ultimately, there was a plea bargain. But that's how I got to the vineyard. When I first got there, I hated it because I'd never been there. And uh, I, I went to the Kelly House, which is a nice hotel in Edgartown. And every journalist from around the world was there because I remember it. At that time, it looked like Ted Kennedy would probably run for president in, in 1970 or whatever it was. And um, 
he was one of the leading candidates for president. His both brothers had been killed in the 60s. And he was the obvious um, person to take over from them. And then this happened. And it didn't, he didn't run, he ran for president in 1980, but he, he lost in the primary to, to Jimmy Carter. But the uh, island was filled with journalists and uh, they were, some of them, pretty rude and impolite. And I got a couple of elbows in the face and, and um, uh, a couple of pushes and shoves. So I didn't like it very much. But then I went back a year later with my family just for a couple of weeks and I really liked it. And so we've been we've been going back since. And so obviously when this happened with the refugees, I got a, a lot of calls and um, I've been trying to answer the questions as honestly as possible, taking into account my personal involvement um, on the vineyard. Uh, let me start with, with this event. As soon as it happened, as soon as I heard the first headlines about 50 refugees going to the vineyard, I immediately called my rabbi, the rabbi at Chabad, which is this wonderful, wonderful uh, Jewish outreach organization that has um, congregations all over the world and that works the free prisoners. Just a great, great organization. I do a lot of pro bono work uh, for them. And I helped to bring Chabad to Martha's Vineyard. And so I called my rabbi and I said, I'm willing from my own pocket to pay for meals for all of those 50 people uh, and for medical care for all those people. Let's just make sure they get appropriate, uh, appropriate uh, food and appropriate medical uh, care. Housing, obviously, is, is, is a little bit different. And they were housed in a, in a school gym uh, for a, a while. Um, and um, I think other people as well reached out on the vineyard. I, I mean, after all, whatever you may think of DeSantis, whether it was a political stunt or whether uh, it was uh, appropriate to send some of the people uh, to the north instead of the border states having to deal with, with all the immigrants, uh, this is a humanitarian issue. We had 50 human beings, um, parents, children, uh, people struggling. And you can't, you can't refuse to help them. Just last night, I saw Ken Burns' um, masterful documentary, only the first part of it. Um, there are two more parts to it, about how America did nothing to try to rescue the Jews from the Holocaust uh, and from uh, Nazism. And uh, um, it, it was just remarkable how little the United States did. Canada was worse. Um, and Great Britain probably bore a tremendous responsibility for not allowing um, the Jews of Europe to go into what was then Palestine, what is today Israel, and that would have saved hundreds of thousands of, of lives. So also the United States refused to bomb the rail lines to Auschwitz, which could have saved um, thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but probably thousands of life. But look, every life is is valuable. And, you know, there's a mixed picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who everybody in my family admired enormously, but um, um, he didn't do as much as he could have to, to save the Jews. It was uh, a secretary of the treasury named uh, Morgenthau who really set up the program that brought the people in the, in the kinder a rescue uh, program. And there was one real, real hero of the Holocaust. I haven't seen the last two, so I don't know whether he gets to that. He was a Catholic lawyer in um, Poland named Jan Karski. I was honored to get to meet him toward the end of his life. And Jan Karski um, was living in Poland and practicing law. 
and he saw what was happening to the Jews, and he pretended to be a Nazi guard. He 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 worked uh, as uh, he offered to be a Nazi guard for a few days just to catalog everything that was happening, and he saw everything, and he had a photographic memory, and he he. He remembered everything, every transport, how they were killing the Jews, what they were doing with their bodies. And he was smuggled out by the Polish underground, sent to the United States to meet with the great American Jewish jurist, Franklin um, Felix Frankfurter, whose professorship I held for many years at Harvard. And Jan Karski went to Frankfurter and said, let me tell you what's going on. And he gave him this detailed account of gas chambers and, and, and lime pits and uh, graves being dug by the people and then they're being shot and put in the grave. And Felix Frankfurter looked at him and said, at a time like this, a man like you must be, a man like me must be perfectly honest with a man like you. I don't believe, I can't believe what you're telling me. And he refused to bring him to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who could have perhaps done more and this was a Jewish justice, but he didn't want to endanger his relationships with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's been a big problem with not only the Jewish community, but certainly with the Jewish community. Um, many are are um, wealthy and established. Not all. There are very poor people in the Jewish community in Brooklyn, um, in Queens, and in, in many places in, in Israel. There are very poor people too. But there are a lot of Jews who are part of the establishment, and they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to um, create enmity. So many Jews did not stand up for um, to save the Jews. Um, um, uh, a man named Proskauer, uh, after whom a big firm is named, Proskauer Rose, one of the big firms in New York. Proskauer was the great villain. Um, he, he said, even though he was Jewish, he wouldn't do anything, basically on behalf of the Jews of Europe and many other, particularly in the reform movement, but many other Jews said, look, we're, we have nothing in common with them. We're, we're Americans. Yeah, we share a religion, but we have no responsibility for them. And so six million of them died, two thirds of the Jewish population of Europe. And as somebody who lost relatives in the Holocaust, my grandfather did a remarkable thing. He saved 28 people from uh, death at the Holocaust by giving them affidavits that they had jobs, that they weren't real jobs, but they were jobs enough to get them into the country. So, um, you know, my grandfather was a real hero and we know the people who he saved, they're now extremely successful. Uh, one of them was the chairman of the engineering department at Columbia University. Another one is a major medical investor in Vanguard. The third one is, one of the most prominent rabbis in, in Los Angeles, another one, you know, runs a communications firm. These are people who were not a burden on the government. These are people who really contributed to the success of the United States. And I'm very proud of what my grandfather did. And it's in my blood and it's in my DNA. And so, of course, the first thing I did was to offer to help these people and not allow them to be used as political uh, pawns and um, other places, churches, synagogues, um, uh, opened up um, and and welcomed them. Uh, and of course, people um, who approve of what DeSantis uh, did said, oh, look, 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 Martha's Vineyard, a bunch of hypocrites. They're liberals. They claim to um, welcome uh, refugees. Yeah, as long as it's not in my backyard. That's a, um, uh, a false allegation. 
you're absolutely right. Many of the people of Martha's Vineyard, particularly in the liberal enclave of Chilmark, where I live, are complete hypocrites. But for the most part, people on the island and people on the island represent every ethnicity and uh, every level of poverty. There are poor people, very poor people. There are people with all kinds of problems, drug problems, alcohol problems. It's not just a paradise for the riches. It's sometimes uh, portrayed. And we try very hard as people who live there, have lived there for so many years during the summer to help the community and to contribute and participate in the life of the community. <laughs> That's one part of Martha's Vineyard. The other part you've heard me talk about, obviously, is the hypocrisy, particularly of Chilmark um, and many of the liberals, the left lefties in Chilmark, uh, who would be appalled if anybody on the right tried to ban a book uh, or ban a speaker. But these folks in Chilmark are responsible for banning speakers and banning books, namely me. Uh, as soon as I represented President Trump on the floor of the Senate, something I'm very proud to have done, even though I voted against him twice and probably will vote against him the third time if he runs, something I was very proud of doing, but I got canceled. And I don't care about the dinner parties or the cocktail parties. I can do without that. I have a wonderful family. We have a great time on the vineyard. But what really upset me was being canceled by the local library. From the day I defended President Trump, they stopped lending my books. I wrote they had 20 of my books prior to the time I represented Trump and people were reading them. But from the day I defended Trump, they refused to buy a single one of my books. And there were about 10 more. And finally, I brought my books to them. Um, and I don't know whether they're uh, lending them out now or not, but they banned them. They were book banners and they banned me as a, um, obviously as a, uh, speaker they didn't want to hear because I defended Trump. I, you know, I tried to make a speech explaining why I defended Trump. They didn't want to listen. Um, so this hypocrisy abounds uh, on parts of uh, Martha's Vineyard, particularly uh, in the liberal enclave of Chilmark, the phony liberal enclave of Chilmark. Um, but the island in general did what it could do. And if the, um, if the refugees had stayed, we would have taken care of them. We would have integrated them into the uh, into the community, um, just as we have other groups have come. And so, you know, we would we would welcome. And if if DeSantis or the governor of Texas or anybody else wants to send refugees to to the vineyard, let them at least notify, you know, the the leaders of the vineyard, the people who are in charge. Give us advance notice. And we'll arrange for them, we'll arrange jobs for them, we'll arrange housing for them, we'll arrange food for them. That doesn't solve the immigration problem. Uh, the immigration problem is very complex. I'm very pro-immigration. I think we are a nation of immigrants, and the immigrants who have come to this country have helped it enormously. You know, every year the New York Times has a page, a full page, on just an ad of the contributions of, of immigrants to America. And it's just remarkable how many people who have contributed to America, you don't even realize are immigrants. You know, they may have come at a very young age, like Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist, and uh, so many other people who have contributed so much medically, scientifically, legally, academically, um, and, and refugees of every kind, from China, from India, from Japan, from Greece, from Italy, from Ireland, from Poland, from Ukraine. We're getting more from Ukraine now, and we'll get more from Ukraine. And if they want to send them to Martha's Vineyard, 
hey, I'll put them up, I'll feed them, I'll give them medical care. That's what my parents did when our relatives came over from uh, Czechoslovakia, which was then called Czechoslovakia, from the small city of Brno. Um, everybody in my family opened up their homes. Uh, people slept on couches, people slept on makeshift beds. Um, but we, we, we welcomed them. Uh, very different from what happened. When the ship to St. Louis came to uh, um, America with uh, German refugees and the United States turned it away. And I only learned from the film, I didn't know this, that the Virgin Islands had said, we'll accept them, um, let them get off the boat, be in the Virgin Islands. But the um, um, United States government said, no, we, 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 won't, we won't allow them off because there's no place they can go back to uh, because they're not safe in Germany. What an irony, because they're being persecuted in Germany, they can't stay in the United States. It was absurd. Um, so, you know, look, immigration is complex. Refugee status is complex. Asylum is not complex. We are a country of asylum. Um, if, you know, give us your hungry, you're, you know, you're poor, the Statue of Liberty. We're a country that accepts people who are being persecuted in other countries. And um, I hope we'll continue to do that. And I hope we'll address the problems of immigration. We don't want to have people who are illegal immigrants jump in front of the line of legal immigrants, but we have to create pathways to lawful citizenship and immigration. But even before we do that, we have to provide asylum for people who are an immediate threat of being killed, prosecuted, persecuted, raped, etc. And um, that's a terrible tragedy. Today in New York, um, a refugee in a refugee center committed suicide, a mother. Um, you know, we're we're not perfect. Um, there's no comparison between what's going on today and the Holocaust, obviously. The Holocaust, millions of people were put in gas chambers and shot and killed, et cetera, et cetera. Here we have people who are under threat and there are six million of them. You know, it's, it's a, nobody should make comparisons to the Holocaust. But uh, I, who grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust, could never turn away a refugee. So um, I'm proud of what I offered. Um, I'm proud of many people on the vineyard, and I'll continue to criticize other people in the vineyard for their hypocrisy. Nobody is going to be happy. Uh, I got a call from somebody saying, you should be a public relations person for the vineyard and just, just you know, tell them that everybody's wrong. Well, as I responded, I'm going to tell the truth about the vineyard. I'm going to tell the positive truth, and I'm going to tell the negative truth. And um, uh, I, when it comes to immigration, it's a positive story, not a negative story. So be interested in what you think about that, particularly about the humanitarian aspects of it. Let's go now to a few uh, letters. A lot of positive letters today about my eulogy uh, for Ken Starr. People seem to like Ken Starr and, and what I said about him. It says here, Benjamin Meltzer, when it comes to defense attorneys representing hated defendants, one must bear in mind that the defense attorney is doing an important job holding the state to account. The state wants to lock the defendants in a jail cell. The defense attorney makes the state prove the defendants belong there and in doing so provides an essential check on state power. Then you get the opposite. I always put opposite views on. This is about my eulogy for my friend Ken Starr. One 
unethical lawyer eulogizing another unethical lawyer. No, neither of us are, is, is unethical. You just don't like who we represented. Um, would you call a doctor unethical because they treated uh, people? I, when I went to my doctor after I was hurt, um, I said, be careful. You know, there are some people in Martha's Vineyard who probably won't talk to you if they know you treated me. Um, and they laughed and they said, no, we don't, we don't really have that problem as doctors. But, you know, it, it will spread. It will spread. Um, according to Bill Barr's book, One Thing After Another, George Bush considered star for the Supreme Court seat that ultimately went to David Souter. According to Barr, star was one of the three finalists for the seat. That's interesting. I didn't know that. And it seems perfectly plausible and reasonable. And, of course, Starr uh, would have served for many years um, until his death. Uh, Souter stayed for only a few years. I think he was a great justice, um, disappointed a lot of right-wing Republicans because he was moderate. But he decided to leave the Supreme Court. He liked his life in, um, in New Hampshire, and uh, he, he wanted to continue to live it as he had lived it for so many years. So uh, I, I like very much David Souter on the court. When he was first nominated, I had my doubts. He had been a student at Harvard Law School. I didn't know him as a, as a student, but um, I went to his um, swearing in or whatever it was. And um, I had written an article in an op-ed saying, is he really a suitable replacement for the great Justice Brennan, one of the greatest justices in history? And, and Souter... Um, said to me, you know, what you wrote was right based on my previous record, but just keep an open mind. And I kept up a correspondence a little bit with him saying how I was wrong and how he really did fill the seat of Justice Brennan uh, quite fully and, and quite excellently. Okay. Uh, next letter. You're a smart ass, Alan. Always trying to play both sides of the street. Well, that's one way of putting it. I like to speak in a balanced way. There are arguments on both sides, like I just did with Martha's Vineyard or so many other things, both sides of the street. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but um, um, I'm going to call it as I see it. Uh, you know, that's like saying that a fair baseball umpire is playing both sides of the street because he calls it fairly for the Yankees and for the Red Sox. That, that's what he's supposed to do. So I take this as an unintended compliment. Yeah, I do play both sides of the street. Well, he says, I have morals. And if I were a lawyer, I would not represent Epstein, Clinton, or Scott Peterson. Well, that's a good thing you're not a lawyer. Uh, I have morals too. And my morals tell me you should represent the most despised people, the people who are the most hated, uh, the people whose constitutional rights may be violated. It was H.L. Mencken who said, the problem with being a civil libertarian is you have to spend so much time defending scoundrels because first they come after the scoundrels, they establish the law, and then they apply the law to the rest of us. I'm writing a new book about a third of the way through, through it. That's number 52 um, called Get Trump. And uh, the subtitle is how efforts to prevent Trump from running for re-election uh, are challenging and, and, and compromising uh, civil liberties and constitutional law. And although I insist on the right to vote against Trump for the third time, I want to make sure I have that right. I don't support in any way these efforts to try to invent crimes uh, against him. And so I've written a book about that. Okay. 
Professor, the U.S. State Department opined in a highly sanctimonious tone that Israel needs to review its rules of engagement as the Israeli government released its report on the killing of a journalist on the West Bank. A total of 13 journalists were killed by the United States military between 2003 and 2005 in the Iraq war. A classic case of the pot calling the kettle black. I don't like that expression, but uh, there appears to, this appears to be more anti-Israel settlement on behalf of the current administration. I don't think it's the current administration. I think in general, the United States has applied a double standard to, um, to Israel. Israel's rules of engagement are very, very, very narrow and very conservative. I know I've spoken to the people who wrote their rules uh, of engagement, professors and uh, other great military uh, leaders, and, and they, they, they generally um, err on the side of not, not shooting people who might pose uh, a danger, but uh, inevitably there are going to be people killed. And when journalists get into the line of fire, uh, there are going to be journalists who are killed. It's a tragedy whenever it happens. And the difference between Israel, for example, and the Palestinian Authority Israel, Israel does an investigation, as it did in this case. It came to a conclusion, an honest conclusion, which hurt Israel, and it made it public. It, most other countries wouldn't have done that. They said that we've looked, we're not certain, nobody can be every, it's completely clear, but it seems likely that the bullet who killed this journalist did come from an Israeli a soldier who didn't aim at her but uh, killed her in the crossfire. They were being shot at by terrorists. So uh, I do think that the United States sometimes demands a double standard uh, against Israel than against other, other countries. Dersh is right most of the time. I don't agree with him on everything, his views of the Constitution, but his intellect is off the chart. Thank you. Alan is a modern-day John Adams and is one of the few public figures who is not drowning in hypocrisy. I wish I could meet him and uh, come to uh, New York sometime. I'll give you a cup of coffee and uh, we can talk. Okay, last question. Professor, could the question of whether an incumbent president can waive the executive privilege of a former president and a potential political opponent make it in front of the Supreme Court? I think it will make it in front of the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has once ruled on that in the Nixon case, and I think its ruling was erroneous. Um, and I suspect it would be open to reconsideration of, of that ruling. Um, it would be absurd to allow a subsequent president to waive the executive privilege of a prior president. How would any sitting president feel comfortable confiding in his aides, knowing that the next person who takes over and the person he may run against has the complete discretion and freedom to reveal any of the secrets particularly those that might hurt him politically. So the issue is not, should a president be able to waive the executive privilege of his predecessor? The question is, should we have executive privilege? If we have executive privilege, then it can't be waived. It's as simple as that. See you tomorrow.